Welcome to the Beyond Transcripts podcast, a digital support group for everyone interested in a learning lifestyle. I'm your host, Holly. I'm your co-host, Melody. So today we're going to be talking about how to deal with resistant learners. But before we get into our topic, Melody, what have you been doing since I saw you last? One thing I've been doing is learning how to change some of my teaching materials into PDFs that I can share on Teachers Pay Teachers and just other different sites because they don't do anybody any good just sitting around in a thumb drive. So I'm trying to be more tech savvy. Oh, yeah, that's it's always good to flex your tech muscles. Um, I know that new technology stresses me out, but then once I learn it, I feel like it's increasing my brain to accept the next new technology that I have to learn. Right, you kind of have to keep up so you can build, everything builds on the thing that came before, so... Exactly. It's, it's fun. Yeah, it's but, fun. You know, in the beginning, it's like, whoa, that doesn't look right at all. So <laughs> let me try again. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's cool that you're going to put your stuff on Teachers Pay Teachers. Mm-hmm. I actually um, got something off of there. Um, we have been doing a really fun little weather log. We started it in January, and every day we uh, we write down the statistics of that day, you know, the temperature, the weather, and then we draw a picture. And um, we have been having a lot of fun going back to look at different things. And it was really exciting. For those of you who don't live in Texas, uh, you'll probably think this is funny. But it was really exciting when we could color snow on one of our pages. Oh, my. Yes. Yeah. So we had that one, one night when we had a couple snowflakes come down. But it was <laughs> official. So we put it on our on our page. And um, so, yeah, we Teachers Pay Teachers is a great, uh, great place resource. to get some resources. Yeah. So I've been um, working in my garden. I'm so excited. My little okras have sprouted. And um, again, for those of you who aren't in Texas, we love okra and it's not slimy. If you need to know about that, you can send us a question maybe. (laughs) But anyway, we, uh, the okras are growing. I've been harvesting blackberries to put in my breakfast every morning. We've got little, the little uh, cherry tomatoes. And we counted yesterday. We have 20. Oh my goodness. Just about to pop. Now do yours make it into the house or do they... Some ours oh, well, don't make it into the house. They just get eaten in the garden. It depends on if the grandchildren have come to visit us and eaten them on the way in to tell us about them. <laughs> yeah. But, we, yeah, we do. There, We planted more vines this year, so hopefully more will make it into my salad. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, we have, I think we have about half a dozen tomato plants or maybe, yeah, maybe nine tomato plants. I keep telling my husband not to buy so many. Because one year he had like 20 different varieties. And no matter how much you love tomatoes, that's just too many tomatoes. But then you have bonus to share, which is always fun. It is fun. It is fun. Well, I think we better go ahead and and get into our topic because there's a lot to talk about when you have resistant learners. So let's just talk about what it it is when you have a resistant learner to begin with. What, What does that mean? For me, it means someone who is resisting some aspect of the work. They don't want to do it. Sometimes it's a child that's very weepy or just maybe obstinate. Um, they've lost the joy of homeschooling, uh, or they might be resisting some other aspect of, you know, household chores, or sometimes that resistance comes out in other ways. And so um, the first thing I always do is try to figure out what's going on. Seek first to understand what has happened. What's going on? What changed? I know one time we had, we were just 
rolling right along with one of mine learning how to read, and then we hit a wall. Mm -hmm. And as I reflected over it and realized it was that jump from third grade to fourth grade where the print gets smaller. Oh. And we discovered this child had some vision problems and needed glasses, and that was the source of the resistance. So figuring that out. How was your child behaving in that situation? Oh, they didn't want to read. They didn't want to do anything. It wasn't, you know, put down the book and walk away or just struggling, trying Mm -hmm. to trying to figure out what words were saying. We found out later she had astigmatism. So the letters were jumping around Mm -hmm. that little wrinkle in her eye, making a flip. And she was getting really frustrated. So sometimes resistant learning looks like bad behavior. Sometimes it does. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's important, like you said, to figure out what is causing it. Because if it's a bad attitude, that's certainly different than an astigmatism that prevents you from being able to read. Exactly. And and you deal with those things in completely different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and kids don't ever say, "Um, I'm having a hard time with this. They just, they don't put the words to it. Even kids who are in high school. My oldest daughter had a learning disability in the area of math, and she went to public high school. Well, she she was just acting uh, grumpy with her teachers and not cooperative. So they didn't want to help her because they thought she was just a bad kid. Mm-hmm. But what it was is she couldn't understand the material. And instead of saying, I don't understand the material, this isn't making sense, her resistance was a bad attitude. So it's really important, like you right. said, to f- try to find out what's behind it. And understand that even teenagers aren't necessarily going to come and tell you in so many words what's bothering them. You kind of have to help them to unpack that problem. That's a good way to put it. Help Mm -hmm. them unpack the problem. Mm -hmm. Figure out what's going on. Because sometimes kids who are having a struggle with something, like you said, they don't know what the problem is. They start to think that they're not able to do the work. Right. They they, they think badly of themselves. They think badly of Mm -hmm. themselves. and. We want every we want to have confident learners, and so sometimes it's that shifting gears to come alongside your child to figure it out together. Right. So yes. we can move forward. Yes, and then you can have a plan of action. Certainly. So sometimes resistant uh, learning looks like personality clashes. Right, and sometimes it might be a personality clash, and that's where it is helpful to know about learning styles and different personalities that there's so many resources out there for looking into that and to find better ways to communicate with someone so that you can figure out how to help them look at it in a different way. So um, it seems to me that over the course of uh, this topic of resistant learning, um, it comes under six main points. So I thought maybe we could talk about three of them now and then talk about three of them after our break. So one of the points that I see most often is that it's a control issue. <laughs> and so um, let's talk a little bit about control issues and how it builds into resistant learners. Okay. I find that control, it becomes an issue usually with older students. Um, and so like not so much with my younger ones. They're just tell me what to do and they're, that's what they're younger. That's what they're used to. But with my older children... And uh, sometimes it was just all they needed was to be given a choice. We were still going to get all the same things done, but we could do them in just about any order throughout the day. And once I let uh, my oldest daughter like to always to change some aspect of the assignment, and I knew that about her. Once I realized it wasn't, she wasn't 
disrespect me in any way. She just wanted to change something, like maybe modify it from a report to something else. Um, yeah, you know, some kids definitely have opinions about everything. Yes. And it, like you said, if it doesn't matter, so maybe it's uh, not a written report, maybe it's an oral report. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're going to create, I don't know, a slide show or something. It's still going to get you the information you want. So right. you don't need to die on that mountain. It's not a mountain to die on. Right. And they still have to do the same amount of research to get to the end product. Mm -hmm. So it's useful. And then it was, you know, one of them might be, um, instead of making a diorama, they want to make a costume for that historical period. Or right. make up a crossword puzzle or write a song. One of one time someone wanted to write a song. And um, that was really clever. actually great. It was great. We're all singing that song. Um Find and just that? give yourself permission to modify things a little bit, right, make it more right. palatable. Everybody's happy, they're learning, and you're getting to check that off. Right. Yeah. But, when I ran into the same control issue, but with a child that was younger. She was in, I think, fourth grade. And if I said, she said, what are we going to do? And I said, oh, we're going to start with math. That was the last thing she wanted to do. <laughs> and I realized that you know, I didn't have to have control over that. Like you said, when it got done, what order it got done, and it didn't matter because it was going to get done no matter what. So I just finally would say to her, well, here's what we have to do. What would you like to start with? Sometimes she chose math just to get Surprise. it out of the way. But if I told her it was going to be math, then that was the last thing she wanted to start with. And I really didn't think it was important enough to have a fight. But I saved my fights about things that were not negotiable. That really matter. Right. Mm -hmm. As long as everything is getting done, mm -hmm. that's fine. And then we do that as adults anyway. We know when we're, when is the best part of the day. That's when I sit down and do some writing or things. And if I'm not a night person, then I don't try to do those things I have to really think about in the evening. Right, exactly. Why wouldn't we give our kids that same consideration for some of their natural rhythms or times when they are more um, capable than other times? You know, if they're really bright and shiny first thing in the morning, well, then tackle those harder subjects mm -hmm. then. Or if they're really bright and shiny at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, then do it then. It, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing or what somebody's curriculum says. The most important thing is to have a good relationship with your child and facilitate their learning. Right. And it's also an opportunity to teach them the reasoning why. Like, would you like to do math first while your brain is sharper, mm -hmm. or would you feel better about doing that after lunch, after you just ate? Exactly. Um, help them to learn to tap into them. their mm -hmm. own rhythms. Well, that's very smart. So giving sometimes giving your child more control eliminates that resistance. Um, and you alluded to this earlier. The next thing I want to talk about is how to make people feel loved. A lot of times when you have a hard thing to do, um, you can do it better when you feel like somebody is uh, appreciating you or loving you. And so for me, I really feel loved when people do things for me. If you take out the trash, I think that's awesome. It makes my day. That's because my love language is acts of service. And so if you learn about love languages, you can you can learn what your child's love language is and then how to use that to help them when they're having a hard time. Okay, so Melody, I know you're familiar with love languages. So do you want to tell us what the five love languages are? And then we'll talk about how we can use that to help our resistant learners. That's a good idea. The I was so glad to learn this for my children. I think it opened up lines of communication that we would not have had otherwise. But the five love languages are words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, 
quality time and physical touch. So what, the way that I used that whole idea was that when we were in a struggle, I would slow myself down to be able to respond to them in their love language. It's almost like speaking the same language so that they can hear right. what they you're can saying. Right, they receive what you're saying. They can mm-hmm. receive what you're saying. And um, I think among our family, we everybody has some combination of all of those, but I know in particular one child really appreciated notes, little notes. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned before, when your seven-year-old can now write little notes, it's like so nice to be able to communicate with them in that way. I think my husband's love language is gifts, and he was always bringing home little things for the kids or for me, and it was a good thing for me to realize that that was important for him. You make a good point. So when you're learning about love languages, one way you can figure out what someone's love language is is what they do to show their love to you. So a person who likes receiving gifts often is a great gift giver. Or a person who really likes a physical touch will be very huggy or very physical. So that's a clue. And you can learn more about those types of things if you go to uh, Dr. Gary Chapman's website where he talks about love languages. But anyway, go ahead, Melody. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, that's a good good impression. (laughs) (laughs) I was just trying to think of other examples of love languages that I noticed. I know that I have one child for whom physical touch was her love language, and I don't think she would mind if I told that for a while her nickname was Velcro. Oh, I know who Velcro is. (laughs) she was always stuck right to me. And so sometimes, you know, as a mom, at the end of the day, you're like, please get off of me. But I realized that that's what she needed. So Mm -hmm. for her, that pat on the shoulder or that little quick squeeze or a hug or just sitting, well, on my lap for a book made a huge difference for Mm -hmm. her. And then she's also the youngest one of many children. So making sure she felt like she got enough attention was really important to me. Yeah. And, um, so I think it can change a little bit. She's not like that anymore. Sure. But um, that was a that was a definite definite sign for us. Right. Someone and like you said, we're a combination of things. So I I have said before I like acts of service, and I also really do like words of affirmation. I I can go for a long long time if somebody just can take a look and acknowledge that what I'm doing. Oh, you did a great job on that. You make things so special. And then I'm like, oh, I don't need any more sleep. I can stay up all night and make these special things for my Mm -hmm. family. Our kids are the same way. You know, they can go a long way. It fills their tank of gas if we can meet their needs in that way. So say math is a hard thing for them and their love language is physical touch. You can, like you said, put your hand on their shoulder and say, I know this is hard for you. You're doing a really good job. Give them a hug. And that will just brighten them up and give them energy to keep going through that hard task. Right. Yeah, so love language is really good. It's good for your kids, and it's good for for you and your partners. It's just a really great thing to learn overall. Um, The next one that um, we would would want to consider when we have resistant learners is their learning style. So sometimes the way we're trying to give information to somebody is not really the way they can receive it. And I um, cannot stand to have people read to me. I don't process things when I hear them. I process things when I read them. So I'm not auditory at all. And so if you were trying to get information into me by, you know, reading to me, I'm never going to get it. My learning style is not auditory. So let's talk a little bit briefly about the learning styles. Okay. So um, like 
auditory learners and visual learners and kinesthetic learners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a good example of a kinesthetic learner. My One of my sons is very kinesthetic and very hands-on and needs to be moving around. Mm-hmm. It's almost like if he's still, his ears are closed, mm-hmm. and if he was moving around, they were open. And so I learned when I was reading to everybody, because we did a lot of read-alouds for whatever subject we were studying, he needed to roll around or wiggle around or move around. That was very distracting. Oh, yeah. I'm very visual. <laughs> right. So I had to put him out of my eyesight where he could roll around or swing his legs or whatever. He, I don't know what he was doing because he was behind me. Right. <laughs> so that I could read aloud to everyone else. And I remember once we were someplace else and he was kind of wiggling around and someone thought he wasn't paying attention. And it was in a class and asked a question. And here popped up his little voice. He knew everything that they had said. Isn't that amazing? Because he was on the ground rolling around. Right. So it makes it, so because he's very kinesthetic, I definitely used manipulatives with him for almost everything I could think of. Right. All hands-on everything to get that information to stick in his brain. Mm-hmm. But we also have auditory learners and visual learners who take in information best by seeing things. And I, one thing I caution people about is too much visual stimulation for your visual learners. Like I like maps and charts and things like that, but too much is too much. And then you've got, you get kind of overload. Yeah. Your but brain those, just can't those are the kids it. who know where on the paper their note about a certain thing is. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I wrote that down at the bottom of that page. And they right. just remember things that way. And then those auditory learners, they hear a song once and can sing it perfectly. Oh, it, it is amazing. Yeah, my husband is kind of like that. He he can just learn a song right away. And I don't know a song until you get to the chorus. Mm-hmm. If the song starts playing, I'm like, I don't know what that is. And he'll say, yes, you do. And then here comes the chorus. Oh, I do know I it. Know. Yeah. I do know it. So, yeah, learning how your kid learns best is a good way to diffuse a resistant learning situation. Now, that's not to say that you should only teach them in their learning style. Because when you grow older, when your child grows older, they go off, say, to college. The college professor could care less if you're auditory <laughs> or kinesthetic or visual. They're going to teach how they teach. So in addition to helping to present material to your child in their learning style, it's also good to help them to deal with other learning styles. So for example, um, I'm not auditory, but my mother was, and she had a hard time remembering things she read until I suggested to her that maybe she should read them out loud to herself. And when she tried that, it helped her to remember much better. And some people, um, maybe they can hear things really well, but they still have a hard time remembering it until they write it down. So, you know, there's a variety of ways that you can um, cement information, and you just kind of have to help people to understand what their strength is and how to compensate for the areas that they're not as strong. Right, and I usually suggest if you, when you're teaching someone in an area they struggle with, definitely teach or modify whatever you have to do it in their learning style. And then on the things that come easily to them, try another way to develop those other skills right that's very good that's very good because i know again back to my oldest daughter she had a hard time with math so we did use a lot of um, math manipulatives with her and it did help her but when she went to public school and it was all just book work and things written on the the board that didn't really go through to her at all and also using practical examples helped her Mm -hmm. a lot so Adding numbers was great, but when it was like adding numbers in your checkbook, 
that was even more impactful. So real, you know, real, real life, life examples often help much better than workbook type examples. So that's our first three topics about how to deal with resistant learners. We're going to take a short break to hear a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the other three topics, which is curriculum, who the instructor is, and any mental health challenges that might be impacting learning. Our podcast today is sponsored by Transcript Maker. It's an online service that allows you to create professional high school transcripts in the comfort of your own home. Today we've been talking about resistance, and a lot of parents are resisting the whole idea of all the record keeping and book work and everything about an Excel spreadsheet and the math to get this done. Oh, I certainly was resistant to doing all that, and I did not want to play around with an Excel spreadsheet. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. You can forget about all of that and let this app calculate your GPA for you. That's great. And you know what else? You can forget about the financial worries of an expensive program because you can get a 14-day free trial at www.transcriptmaker.com. Transcript Maker. Simply better transcripts. All right, let's get back into more discussion on how to deal with resistant learners. And we're going to start with discussing how curriculum plays into resistant learners. Knowing that last point that we made about knowing your child's learning style is a good place to start when you're looking at curriculum. Sometimes we pick something that we love. We love the looks of it. We love the way it's designed, but it may not be a good fit for the way our child learns. And so that's one of those uh, areas to think about when you're choosing curriculum. How does my child best learn? True. And a homeschool budget is often a really tight budget. So mm -hmm. if we buy something we really loved and we plunk down the money, it's a real hit in the gut to find out it's not working. Um, if you can change the curriculum, that will help a lot. But sometimes you just can't. So there are ways you can modify a curriculum that's not really hitting all the bells and whistles for your child that you hoped it would. What are some ways we can modify a curriculum if we can't change it? Well, some of the things that we did was we removed some of the busy work. Like if I had a child who was more of an auditory learner, we would change some of the written work to oral work. Mm -hmm. um, some of the things for my kinesthetic learners, like that we would act out some things that we read about. We just found other ways to pull in, to tie in learning. Recently, we've been having a lot of demonstrations via Lego with my son. Oh, Legos are awesome. Yeah, so he'll make Lego people, and then he'll act out something I just read to him with the Lego people. Because he's seven, he's not going to be writing down any kind of narrations just yet. He does oral narrations. So that's a, that's a great point, is that you can use the same curriculum, but just get the answer from the child in a different format. In a different way. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, the curriculum you bought, it just stinks for you and your family, but someone else might love it. So I always try to sell that curriculum and recoup some of my investment to, to spend on the other curriculum. That's a good, well, then you're helping them because usually you're offering it at a discount mm -hmm. and it helps you. And then you can apply that to something else. And I always like to, if I had someone and I knew that they had a child that was similar in their approach, I would find out what they were using. Oh, definitely. And use that. And that's how we ended up with unit studies. A lot of hands-on activities. And that worked really well for the kinesthetic among us. But the other children who needed more visual or auditory, we just pulled that in. Some of my children would, like, draw pictures of things. Mm -hmm. And that, because they were so visual, that helped them get right. where the other one was acting it out. 
our building with Legos. We did that too. Right. And the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere and all that. They've set up this elaborate thing all over the floor and acted it all out with all the little Lego men and their horses. Mm-hmm. And everybody remembered it so much better. Oh, yes. And then another thing to say is that sometimes you can just ditch curriculum altogether if you are more of an unschooler mindset. And you can just follow your child's uh, you know, natural inclinations and you just build on that. So again, you might might just need a ditch curriculum altogether. It's really um, not a one-size-fits-all thing. And so you just have to be willing to make those changes on the fly and have the prerogative to change your mind about what you started with. It's okay if you change your mind. All right. There are many ways to yes. homeschool. Many ways to educate. Many ways to educate. And it's easier now with so many resources online. Oh, that is true. It's a real, and you can still find things, you know, we still love our books and our library, but now it's enhanced learning and all the things that we can explore. My granddaughter recently decided she wanted to learn to speak Japanese. Oh, sure. So, again, she's online with an app, and she's learning a new language, and it's something she started on her own, and my daughter's like, go for it. Yeah, that's awesome. So... Um, I just wanted to mention something to our listeners because you might hear a little noise in the background. I have a little dog that's our kind of our podcast mascot, and he is he is always in the room with us, and he is making a little bit of noise right now. So that's Watson, and he's our little mascot. Um, so our next topic um, in this resistant learner conversation we're having is about changing the instructor. And man. That kind of hit me hard when I realized sometimes that I wasn't really the best instructor for my students, particularly when they got into the upper grades. My um, daughter, my middle daughter, and my younger youngest daughter, they both were college-bound, and they needed instruction in chemistry, and they needed instruction in some of the higher math that I wasn't really as suited to teaching. And so I had to get my big old ego out of the way and um, enroll them in courses with other instructors. So sometimes, you know, changing the instructor can really help. Did you have any experience with that with your children? Uh, well, it's we did. My One of my sons was really interested in, uh, I've mentioned that before, automo- automotive uh, mechanics and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I know nothing about <laughs> inside of a car and what makes I mean I, was, I know more now because that was his passion and he it always bleeds over to us taught me everything excited. I know so um, we did outsource that find somebody and then he just jumped in and learned from friends and friends dads and his dad and his uncles just learned everything he could about so yes yeah, so we outsourced things like that and um, for some of the basics we just took advantage of community uh, groups that were offering oh, classes. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, community Learning education. can be in so many places, so many places that you can find someone who wants to teach your child. It could be grandparents. It could be your neighbor, your best friend, um, a sibling even could. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Sibling. Teach something that you love because if you, if you love something and it's maybe your passion, you're so excited to find someone else that shares that passion. Um, yeah, then there's not resistance at all. It's they're so excited. They're so excited that they can't stop learning. And you know, when you're interested in something, you're going to read a book about it. You're going mm-hmm. to do an activity about it. I mean, it's just amazing because it will touch almost every area of a curriculum. You know, you're going to read, you're going to write, you're going to um, 
learn to do it. You're going to demonstrate it. I mean, it just it just goes on and on everywhere. I know that particular son that loves cars was not a big fan of writing reports, but he so instead I had him putting together a scrapbook with a an explanation or a history of the car. Well, he was happy to write about that. So we had all the things we needed for his language arts curriculum from his essays about cars and the history. Actually, so much more. What he wrote was so much more than I would have asked for. I was blown away. It was wonderful. Right. And one other thing I wanted to say about changing the instructor is that sometimes you have to change an instructor for just one topic. You know, if you're getting pushback from a child and it's in math, um, then it's probably that we've got several layers of problems there. We've got that we're trying to teach it in a way they can't learn it, mm -hmm. and it's a topic they're finding challenging, and they are so frustrated with it that they're frustrated with us, even though we may not be the problem. So again, changing the instructor isn't, um, you know, an indictment against you personally. It's just that, you know, you're here to facilitate your child's education, and that's the goal, is to make sure they get an education. So how can you best make that happen? It doesn't always have to be you. Not always. Yeah. So um, another issue, or a final point, and sometimes I've, I have found in homeschooling, it's a topic that people don't want to discuss, but it's a really important topic, is that sometimes personality clashes can be due to mental health issues. And even young children can have some mental health issues. And again, they're not going to to tell you what their problems are. So some of these issues, um, you know, they we call them the alphabet issues, ADHD or OCD or, um, you know, different anxiety disorders and even, um, you know, uh, what was that? Selective mutism that we had right, a friend right. whose, whose child had that. There are many different types of mental health issues that kids face. Some of them show up when our kids are young and some don't show up until the teen years. Um, have you had some experience in this area or, or you have some advice for people in this area? Uh, I don't know, but I had a good friend who <clears throat> had to really take a good hard look at what was going on and it was a, a mental health issue and they pulled in or called on professionals and I think that it was a really wise choice once you identify that this was something more than it wasn't developmental it wasn't willful it wasn't someone just you know being obstinate for the sake of being difficult she realized there was really something going on and um, saw huge progress and it was really great to see that they found a way to help that child um, We've had different family members struggle with different things, but it does help open up the conversation to sometimes there might be something going on physically in the brain, like any other physical challenge that someone might have, that you need to address those things right. for, for good health, good mental health. It's a health issue. Yes. And I think that it's really important for all of us as parents and to be familiar with just general knowledge about different issues. For example, like ADHD. My youngest daughter has ADHD, but I didn't really know that's what she had. I wasn't really familiar with that topic. Um, and several of my children have anxiety, and I didn't know what that was. But as uh, my kids got older and they were able to, to share information with me and, um, and I learned more about it, I was able to see those signs. So now with my youngest one, I sometimes see signs that he has some anxiety. And I'm able to help him with tools 
to deal with his anxiety. And I've also realized that I think I probably have a little bit of ADHD because I, um, I might go out to start doing one task and then I get totally distracted and I get another task and I have a lot of unfinished projects. And so I think that it's really good for all of us to begin learning about the various um, mental health issues that might impact our children. Because when we know what those are, when we know some of the hallmarks of those, we can then be able to help our child. And, you know, not knowing means you can't help them. And if you know things, you can help them. Absolutely. So those are our tips for dealing with resistant learners. And when you experience that problem, try some of them out and see how they work for you. At this time in our podcast, we answer listener questions. Melody, do you have a question, a listener question for us? I do. We have a question today from Jane. What about socialization? You know, that question comes up a lot. And I know that um, as experienced homeschoolers, we sometimes think it's not a big deal. But speaking to my daughter recently, and she was very shy as a kid, she mentioned that it was really hard for her to interact with people her own age. She, she learned how to interact with her brothers and sisters, but that because she very rarely was around people just her own age, that it was really hard and awkward for her. And she had a lot of learning to do in that realm, and, and it was hard for her as a teenager. So I think we should talk about how we can make sure to give our kids some positive peer-to-peer socialization because mm-hmm. they're going to get socialized in other ways. They're going to be around older people and younger people. They're going to be out in the community. But let's talk about ways that we can give our kids peer opportunities. That's a good point. Uh, one, one of the things we did was park days where there were other homeschooling families. We all met at the park and just played. And that way the children are interacting with Well, that was a a range of ages, but there were children their own age there as well. And so then they learn what's okay and how people interact with each other. Um, Some of my children were very um, outgoing, so to speak. They're just easy for them to to walk up and talk to a stranger, and others would just die before they do that. And so it was an opportunity with friendly people that they were comfortable with to learn how to interact with others. Sure, to learn social cues. I, I do remember exactly. having to explain some things to my kids about when someone does this kind of behavior or they have this kind of expression, what that might mean. Mm-hmm. And um, my um, at one time we had belonged to a bowling group and we just went bowling. And my daughter made a good friend at bowling and then she got invited to birthday parties. And so that those are the kind of things that people who are in public school have more experience because they're in a classroom with people their own age. Um, they actually, a lot of the public schools, if you invite somebody in the class, you have to invite, invite everybody. Mm-hmm. So they, they get invited to birthday parties and they get involved in social situations with kids their own age. So that is an important aspect of socialization. And I think that's what people um, wonder about when they ask that question. As, as veteran homeschoolers, we always think, oh, well, no, they're always out getting socialization. But um, hearing it from the viewpoint of my child who was homeschooled and who was shy, um, it is a good point that we have to make actual specific efforts to make sure our kids can interact with kids their own age. Because you do tend to want to seek your own group and people who understand you who have the same kind of interests that you do. So, yes, you do want to make sure you give your kids those opportunities. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things, clubs, scouts co-op. Yeah, scouts is particularly kids of a certain age are Mm -hmm. in a group together, like if you're Daisy and Girl Scouts or if you're a Cub 
in Boys Cub Scouts, such like that, those kids are going to be in a group with other kids around their same age. Yeah, makes good makes good sense. Okay, well, and we want to remind you that we are rebranding as the Happy Homeschooler Podcast, so keep an eye out for us as we move forward that we're going to look a little different and we're going to have a different name. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly. I'm Melody. Happy homeschooling. Hi, this is your host, Holly Williams-Urbach. Thank you for listening to Beyond Transcripts, a transcript maker production. My co-host is Melody Gillum. This episode was produced by Matthew Bass and edited by Nora Williams. Our music is by The Great Pangolin. You can find her music on YouTube and Twitter at Kylie Wins. That's K-A-I-L-E-Y Wins. All right, let's get back into more discussion on how to deal with resistant learners. And we're going to start with discussing how curriculum plays into resistant learners. That is a good... um place to if you oh, good grief. <laughs>